following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Savior God to thee, how great 
Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling for men and women in these last days who will live without sin, holy, set apart, given to him. Now, these words sound very strange in our culture. They sound very strange in our in our Western America. Almost everything about the gospel for Americans is conceptual or sentimental. Not laying down our lives for the gospel of Jesus. But in these last days, there will be men and women who will live a holy life free from sin. I want you to be one of those. There's a story in the scripture that I'd like to share with you. It's found in the book of Luke, the fourth chapter. Jesus has come out of the wilderness where he was led by the Holy Spirit. He has been filled with the Holy Spirit. He has been anointed from on high. The dove has come down from heaven and rested upon him. And he went up from there with power. We do not have any account of even one miracle that Jesus did before the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. And yet today we have men and women who think that it is enough to simply turn away from wickedness and that they don't need the power of the Holy Spirit, that they already have it all. And then there are others who in the midst of their wickedness say we must have the Holy Spirit for power and they claim to have a spirit, but it is by and large, if they're sinners before God, a kundalini spirit, not a holy spirit. A happy spirit maybe, but not a holy spirit. So Jesus comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power he has as God. He did not use that power while he was on the earth. Instead, it's Holy Spirit power. He returns to Galilee, and there he begins to teach in their synagogues. He preaches. But then he makes his way to his hometown, Nazareth. Now we have the first recorded sermon that Jesus gives. Now, Nazareth is not a beautiful town. It's an ugly little town. I've been there. I've stood on the on the brim of that cliff and looked down where they tried to throw Jesus. But listen to his message. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went into the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath. 
and he stood up to read. A scroll of Isaiah the prophet was given to him, and having unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it had been written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because of which he anointed me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to restore the ones having been broken in heart, to to proclaim deliverance for the captives, and recovery of sight for the blind, to send forth the one having been downtrodden with deliverance, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now let's look just briefly at what this passage means. The Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost. Ghost in the Old English meaning guest, holy guest. He has anointed Jesus to preach the gospel to the poor. Remember the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in heart. That is, blessed are those who cannot redeem themselves, who cannot rescue themselves, who have no ability to work hard to rescue themselves from their abject poverty. But this passage in Isaiah that Jesus is quoting is anointed me to preach the gospel to the one who cannot help himself. And of course, he's speaking about the gospel of the kingdom of God. He has sent me to restore the ones having been broken in heart. To restore the broken in heart. I want you to see the the movement of this passage. First, to preach the gospel to those who cannot help themselves. Secondly, to preach the gospel to those who are utterly broken in heart, who are grieving. To proclaim deliverance for the the captive. Deliverance here is aphemy, which is usually translated in the scriptures as to forgive. And I've told you many times the true meaning is to remove. So here it is translated as deliverance, which is to remove the captivity. And then to proclaim the removal of captivity for the captive. And the word captive in the Greek is very interesting. It's made up of two words, spear 
point. In other words, he's saying to proclaim deliverance for the ones who are held at the point of a spear, that if they try to escape, they'll be slain. They'll be pierced through. They'll be killed. Of course, the reference is to being totally captive to sin, to addictions, to alcohol addiction, to drugs, to sex, to food, whatever the addiction is, pride, arrogance, hardness of heart, to be delivered from that spear point that is threatening your life if you try to get free. And then a recovery of sight for the blind. To send forth the ones having been downtrodden with deliverance. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I want you to see that as Jesus begins to describe his ministry, not one word is spoken of redeeming those who considered themselves righteous because they kept the law. Not one word is spoken about setting free the Pharisee or the Sadducee. Instead, he's speaking about restoring the ones that have been broken in heart, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the poor, to those who can't help themselves, to proclaim deliverance for the captives being held at spear point, and recovery of sight for the blind, to send forth the ones having been downtrodden with deliverance, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. We live today in the acceptable year of the Lord. And all of these promises of what Jesus is about is the same thing Jesus is continuing to be about. He's interested in those who cannot help themselves. He's interested in those who have broken hearts. He's interested in those who are held at a spear point. He's interested in those who are blind and know they're blind. He's interested in the ones having been downtrodden by their life circumstances. They've failed constantly. They've been wiped out. And to proclaim that all of these people that I've just described are acceptable before God if they will hear what Jesus has come to teach them and to do for them. Well, you can imagine, after Jesus reads this passage of Scripture, there's not a sound or a move in that synagogue. Everyone's eyes are fixed on Jesus. And this is Luke 4, verse 20. And after having rolled up the scroll and having given it back to the attendant, he sat down. In that culture, when 
The preacher sat down. It meant he had something very important to say to the congregation. And so he sat down, probably in the chair of Moses, which was the teaching chair placed a little higher than the rest of the people in the synagogue, central in the synagogue in the front. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now he began to say to them, Today the scripture stands fulfilled in your ears. The scripture stands fulfilled. In other words, all of these wonderful promises that he's just made to the poor and to the captive and to the blind, the healing for all of this has now come. They were all listening to him and and wondering at the words of grace coming out of his mouth. But they were also saying something else. Is not this the son of Joseph? He'd grown up in that town. They knew Jesus. Is, Is this not the son of Joseph? Who does he think he is saying that this scripture is fulfilled in our ears today? The Messiah hasn't come. This is a messianic promise. And he said to them, You will probably tell me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. As much as we heard having happened in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown. Do some magic for us. Heal some people for us. Prove that you are, in fact, able to read this scripture and say that today it's fulfilled in our ears. And knowing what they were saying, he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I say to you, many widows were in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. As great famine came upon all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them except Zarephath, Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, but none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, And all in the synagogue, hearing these things, were filled with wrath. Why were they filled with wrath? Because he's lifting up Gentiles. And he's saying these Gentiles were able to receive the blessing of this messianic promise from Isaiah. These Gentiles received the gift of healing. They were considered by God, and he heard the prayer. But no one in Israel was healed. Elijah didn't stay with an Israelite family. He had to go to Zarephath, where Jezebel was from. 
Now, they're angry. They're bitter. And it says, having arisen, they drove him from out from the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built to throw him down the cliff. But he, having gone through the midst of them, was going away. I've been to Nazareth. We drove into that small town. We walked around. It was filled with poverty. It was dirty. I can understand even today, would anybody say that anything good could come out of Nazareth? And then we got in the car and drove to the brow of the hill. And that would have taken probably an hour of walking time in the day of Jesus. They were angry enough. They were angry enough to walk for an hour at least to take Jesus to the brow of the hill. And I'm sure as they were doing it, they were insulting him. It says they led him. In other words, they jerked him. They forced him to go to the brow of the hill. And if you, as I did, I stood on the brow of that hill and hung my legs over the edge. It's probably 500 feet straight down. If you were thrown off that cliff, you would die. There is no doubt. But Jesus turned. He allowed himself to be led to the hill to see the fullness of what they intended to do. And then in turn, by the power of the Spirit, was enabled to just walk out, walk through them, and leave. He did not do miracles, very few, in Nazareth because they had no faith in him. They scorned him. They said, this man is not the Messiah. It's impossible that he could grant us this gift. I've read this story many times. I've heard it preached on many times. But one part that I've not heard preached on that struck me like a hammer on an anvil in the midst of the night. Jesus left them. God, the Savior, left them. There's no salvation when Jesus leaves. As I've thought and prayed and asked the Lord, he began to reveal something else to me that frankly is frightening to my heart. Today, when I read this passage of Scripture, I want to tell you that it applies today as much as it did in that day. And I want to tell you that today, those of you who are poor, who have no ability to help yourself stop sinning, Jesus is prepared to take that sin out of your life. For those of you who are broken in heart, if you'll go to Jesus, he will heal your broken heart. 
There is deliverance for those who are at the spear point of sin, a bondage, whatever the bondage. And you can be delivered. If you're blind and you can't see spiritually, you don't know what's right, you're confused, Jesus will give you recovery of your sight, of your spiritual sight. Downtrodden, you feel like you've been beat up by the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is full deliverance in the name of Jesus. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying something that has made a lot of people very angry with me. And they too would like to run me out of town on a rail. They'd like to throw me off a cliff. Because I continually come back and say, you can live a holy life free from all sin. That's not an acceptable statement in our culture in our day. But I stand by that statement. It is necessary in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that we be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you are still walking in darkness, you're in trouble. And the day will come when Jesus will walk away from you and you will be left if you think that you can continue to walk in your sin and you think that it's impossible to not sin and the common lie of our culture is that you cannot walk free of your sin, that we are all sinners. I had a brother who's been even attending the National Prayer Chapel say to me this last week, Pastor, we're all sinners. No, we're not. Where'd you get that lie? I've been set free. I walk clean in Jesus. What? You claim to walk free in Jesus? Impossible. You can't do that until you're taken into the heavens. At death, you'll be changed. Well, no, death is not my Savior. Jesus is my Savior. Look, if I don't have a message that accords with what Jesus said he was doing, then what message do I have? I have none. If there is not a way for me to walk clean in Jesus, I'm a dead man walking. I'm a poor man who cannot help himself. The spear point is still at my back, and I can be slain at any point. Jesus is teaching the very first sermon he gives, that he's here to set us free, to release us from our captivity, to restore us. Now, I don't have a lifetime to accomplish this, and neither do you. Because the powerful, wonderful presence of the Holy Spirit will not come to you until you are living day by day without any 
awareness of rebellion in your heart against God. For that is the biblical definition of sin. It is rebellion against God in 1 John. It is lawlessness. It is having your own way and your own will. Now, I've shared with you this week the struggle that I've had trying to talk to you about Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They said to the, to the Holy Spirit, we will give this amount of money. And then they withheld a certain portion of that and did not give it. Likewise, many today say, we love Jesus. We give Jesus our lives. We will follow Jesus. And then hold back that portion of sin that they so much enjoy, that television show. They say, oh, come on, Pastor. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good. Yes, it's from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not righteous. It doesn't take you to Jesus. It doesn't prepare you for eternity. Oh, Pastor, you're being very narrow-minded. No, I'm not. I'm dealing with the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's time to get ready for heaven. The Lord is looking for men and women who will utterly focus their attention on him. Their eyes will be on Jesus, not on their surroundings, not on others, not lusting in their heart for money or success, not lusting for that new car, not lusting for a better job, not lusting for that woman or that man. All of these things, the scriptures say, have to be laid aside. They have to be put away. So Romans 6 As many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. You can't be a Christian and you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't have the fire of Pentecost in your life and walk in sin. You can walk in a false spirit, a kundalini spirit, a Buddhist spirit, and walk in your sin. But you can't have the Holy Spirit. And so many today say to me, Pastor, I've been baptized in Pentecost in the Holy Spirit. But what I see in their life is a life of self-indulgent sin. What I see in their ministry is deadness. Many times I've gone to to someone who claims that they have been baptized in Pentecost power. And I've asked them to anoint me for that baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they have prayed for me and I have believed that Jesus would grant that baptism to me. But nothing happened. Many times I've seen men and women pray 
for a very specific answer, and sometimes the Lord answers, but most times he doesn't. Why? Because we don't know the mind of the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who brings to us the mind of the Lord. And without the mind of the Lord, we're dead. And the church in America today is dead. Now, they can work up some wonderful programs, and they can do some wonderful concerts, and they can have preachers who will preach eloquently to them, telling them wonderful stories, moving them with tears, causing them to burst out with laughter. But we're dead. You can go to the Kennedy Center, and you can sit through some famous operas, and you'll laugh and you'll cry. And then you'll walk out of the opera and you will be the same person as walked into that opera. You have simply been entertained. That's the state of the American church. It is entertainment. It is socially acceptable to go to church. Other than COVID. But we're dead. And we don't sense a need to cry out to God to change that deadness to give us life. It has to change. The only way it can change is by being truly baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. When we're buried with Jesus Christ, all of our dreams are over. All of our plans are finished. I had dinner last night with a a wonderful couple. And they told me of their retirement plans in 10 years. They'd like to move to another area where they can live cheaper They're here in Washington only so they can earn money. I didn't ask them. I know they're church people, but I also know they're not Christian people because they are still operating in this world with their own agenda, with their own life, making plans for their life, for where they want to live, where they can enjoy the benefits of being retired and having the time to do what they'd like to do, travel and go to the places they'd like to to go see. So they'll spend the next 10 years working. What if they die before they reach that 10-year mark? What if they die before they get to retire? Their whole life has been focused on moving forward, making a contribution but earning money, saving it, so they can have a retirement. What are they going to do when the 401k is gone? And it will be gone. What are people going to do when their pensions are not being paid and when they stop getting Social Security? What's going to happen? It will happen. 
So the question is, are we, are we baptized into the death of Jesus? Have we agreed that we are blind, naked, miserable? Have we agreed that we're held at a spear point of money? Have we agreed that we're downtrodden? We're tired of the rat race. Are you ready to be delivered? To enter into a new life? Where now, you don't make the plans. Jesus does. He brings the resources to you to do what he asks you to do. He provides for you all that you need. He carries you in his arms. Notice, this is Romans 6, verse 4. Really, we were buried together with him by means of the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised out from among dead men by the glory of the Father, so also we may walk around in newness of life. The whole promise of God in this messianic promise that he used for his sermon was that he would give us new life, freedom. For if we have been united in the similarity of his death, then we shall also be united in the similarity of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, the old man is the one who has controlled. He's held us at spear point. Controlled by lust and anger and bitterness. Controlled by our own plans, our own desires, worldliness. The old man is crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. Not repressed, not held down utterly destroyed that we may not hereafter serve sin for the one having died has been freed from sin now what's not to understand about that statement in plain English if you say to me, I am not freed from my sin, I will say to you, you are not freed from your sin because you have never been born from above. You have never been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I will say to you that you are still a pagan, and maybe Jesus is just spray-painted on the outside of your life. You claim to be a Christian, but if you're still walking in sin, and, and I know the culture says, no, 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 and the church and the pastors say, no, 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 you can't leave your sin. You're forgiven. You're a part of the family of God. You can't be lost. You're going to heaven. Really? When you haven't been crucified with Christ? You're still not free from your sin? It says the one having died has been freed from sin. So if you're not freed from sin, you didn't die with Christ. 
but if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised out from among dead men, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 11, So also you must think yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but living for God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you still committing sin? And if you say, you know, I'm trying to do my best, but yeah, I'm still sinning. And you've not died with Christ. I know. That makes some people very angry. They don't believe it. They turn aside. They say, Pastor, that's impossible. Read the scriptures. Do you establish truth by your experience, or do you establish truth by what the Word of God says to you in plain English? Listen. Sin must not reign, this is verse 12, in your mortal body to obey it in the lust of it. You must not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to the sin, but once and for all yield yourselves to God as living out from among spiritually dead men. We live in a whole culture of spiritually dead men. Our government is filled with dead men, spiritually dead. Our president is spiritually dead. Nancy Pelosi is spiritually dead. Chuck Schumer, I could go right on down the list. Their actions, their policies are very clearly telling us that they support the murder of babies, that they are spiritually dead. He's calling us to die to our sin, to yield ourselves to God. Look, what I'm trying to say to you today is Jesus loves you. And if Jesus loves you, he's not going to leave you in the grip of the devil. He's not going to let this beast power come into your home and ravage you. He's not going to let this beast turn you into an idiot. Jesus loves you. It says in verse 14, For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin even once hereafter because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. It's as strong in the Greek as it could possibly be. Absolutely no. No, no, no. Do you not know that to whom you yield yourselves to serve, to obey, you are servants to whom you obey, whether of sin in death or of obedience in righteousness? But thanks be to God, because you used to be servants of sin, but you obeyed out from the heart a standard of teaching under which you were delivered. I am calling you today to be delivered to a standard of teaching, to a holy life, free from sin. 
Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes, but mistakes are not intentional. They're not voluntary. Sin is intentional and voluntary. Or an infirmity. If I can't hit a hole in one on the golf course, it's because my muscles are not coordinated enough to be par. I'm infirm. Some things we have a hard time with, but it's not sin. We can voluntarily give ourselves utterly and fully by the blood of Jesus into his hands. Now, I'm, I'm coming and emphasizing this again because next week I'm going to focus on how do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit And I'm going to read for you some things about people who received the baptism. And if you are walking free of sin, if you have died with Christ, then it is absolutely essential that you be sealed by the Holy Spirit for the final day of judgment. And the only way you can be sealed by the Holy Spirit is the Pentecost baptism. There is no other sealing. The Holy Spirit will come into your life and he'll work with you. He'll call you. He'll rebuke you. He will punish you. But you are not sealed in the Holy Spirit until you have received the Pentecost baptism. It's clear in the scriptures. You are not sealed in the Holy Spirit until you are baptized in Pentecost power. And when you are baptized in Pentecost power, you will become a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. Most today have stopped where they accepted Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. One mega church here in Springfield, Virginia, has a policy. They've told their pastors, do not teach people that they must receive Jesus as Lord. That will come later as they mature. Teach them that he is Savior now. No, he's not Savior if he's not Lord. So here we have it. Sin must not reign in your mortal body to obey it in the lust of it. You must not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to the sin, but once and for all yield yourselves to God as living out from spiritually dead men and yield your members as instruments of righteousness, for sin will not rule over you. If sin is ruling over you, you have not been born again, and you are not saved. You see, usually people want to talk about, okay, I just need to accept Jesus as my my Savior. And I need to say a little sinner's prayer and ask him to forgive me for all of my sins, and then I'm good to go. I've heard preachers lead people through a simple little sinner's prayer at the altar and then say to them, okay, you're saved now. 
you're on your way. You can't lose your salvation. No matter how you sin, you are covered. You are part of God's family, and you are going to heaven. Liar, 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 your pants are on fire. You are not speaking the word of the living God. You are speaking Gnosticism, not the gospel of Jesus. You see... We get angry when someone tells us this because we like our lives. And we want Jesus too. We have our our hidey caves that we go to. We have our, our entertainment that we go to. We have our movies that we go to. We have our unclean things we go to. No, all of that has to end those hidden places, those hidden sins are not hidden to the Father. And if you want to be free, the Christian faith in Jesus Christ is going to have to be the number one issue in your heart and life, time, money, and energy. You will not squeak in to heaven. You will not slip under at the last moment. It's not possible. You must give yourself entirely and completely into the hands of Jesus Christ. And then, as you'll learn next week, you can be born from above in power. And I, with some other wonderful believers, are standing by faith and waiting on the Lord for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're welcome to come and stand with us. If you live in the Washington metro area, go to the webpage nationalprayerchapel.com and there you'll see is the address for where we meet. We're a small company of people. There's nothing impressive about us. We're waiting on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to wait with us, If you'd like accountability to deal with the sin of your heart and you want to be set free, we'll pray for you. We'll talk with you. We talk with each other. We hold one another accountable. I invite you to come. Now we're almost out of time. I'd like to pray with you. Lord, I come today lifting up every person listening to this broadcast. I know, O Lord Jesus, that you are calling for men and women in these last days that will live a holy life free from all sin. I know that that is what you expect, and I know that's what your Holy Spirit is calling for, because then I know he wants to come in great power for ministry and outreach and revival in this nation. Lord, would you come? Would you bring great conviction on the heart of every person who has listened? Lord, some people already know what I've just taught, but they've never acted on it in the fullest extent. Lord, would you call them? Would you convict them? And would you give them a spirit of prayer and crying out to you? Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen.
Well, you've been listening to Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. This is Pilgrim's Progress. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find all the information about the church and how you can donate online. I also invite you to, to write to me. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Thank you, Mike. Received your gift for Jesus, your offering this morning. Mike has had his life totally changed, transformed by the power of the blood of Jesus as he has listened to this broadcast. I pray the same is happening for you. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.